0: little Tommy watched his mom as she was baking this magnificent chocolate cake. And he was salivating. And then he started pestering his mother. Mom, when are we going to eat the cake? When are we going to eat the cake? And his mother said, Now, Tommy, this cake is not for us. It's for the guests who will be coming tonight. Tommy... I'm going upstairs to take a nap. (laughs) And Tommy, do not touch the cake. And so she goes upstairs, and I want you to imagine Tommy pulling his chair a little closer to look at the cake, just close up, to admire mom's handiwork. But as Tommy got closer to the cake, he noticed a slight imperfection In the double fudge icing, there's a little swirl there. And he sought to smooth it over. That's all he's doing. He's just going to smooth the cake over. And then, of course, he licked his finger. But once he did this, he realized that there's another imperfection on the other side of the cake. So he turns the cake around, and he smooths that other side and licks his finger. Then he turns it around. He kept turning that cake around, trying to smooth the icing, the swirl of the icing on the cake. That's his reasoning. Mom said, don't eat of the cake. What she really meant, I shouldn't eat it. But it's okay to improve on her handiwork, and after all, Mom would really want this cake to look perfect for the guests. And so he kept on turning it around, turning it around, and then all of a sudden he realized that the cake looks far worse than in the beginning. So he reasoned again, well, now that I messed it up, might as well enjoy a piece of cake. (laughs) Surely mom would not mind at all, would she? So, as Tommy was finishing his second piece of cake, he hears mom yelling from upstairs, saying, Tommy, did I not tell you not to touch the cake? Well, the thing is, Tommy reasoned in his mind that mom is not really a very reasonable, is she? Not very re- I mean, he built this thing in his mind in a logical sequence. But this story is repeated millions of times, millions of times. In many a home, many a public place, many a workplace is repeated, not to do with cake per se, but to do with so many of the moral issues that we're facing and the major decision about whether we keep the law of God or break the law of God, and why should we do this, and why should we do the other thing. And uh, we try to somehow go around the law, rationalize. We try to uh, circumvent the law. The people spend untold hours uh, finding loopholes in the law. The others spend millions of dollars trying to get around the law But in the long run, there is no going around the law of God. Because the law of God is perfect. The law of God is absolute. The law of God is holy. And God demands that everyone to be saved must obey the law all the time perfectly. But that's an impossibility. The natural man can never do that. It is impossible. So we're at the impasse. What do we do? Now this is a very important message, beloved, listen to me. This is an important message because simply there are so many people in our culture, even in the church pews, who are so confused about the relationship of grace to the law. They really are many people who claim to be Christians, and oh, they'll tell you they're Christians, but then when you dig deeper, you find that they are so confused about what Christianity is all about. Many people are confused about what the core of Christianity is all about. And here in Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 all the way to the end, Paul compares the law of Moses to a legal document that's drawn up By lawyers. He compares this law of God with the covenant of grace. Which was given to Abraham 430 years before the law was given to Moses. This whole confusion between grace and law boils down to one word. One word. In some translations it said offspring. And for centuries the rabbis have interpreted that word offspring... To mean is what we call collective noun. Collective noun is a noun that's in the singular but refers to a group of people. Let me illustrate this. I can point to one of my children and say, he or she is my offspring. Or I can point to all of my children and grandchildren and say, they are my offspring. Still in the singular. Now you understand the difference. The ancient rabbis for centuries tried to interpret that Abraham's offspring, especially in Genesis 15, is the Jewish nation, is the Jewish people, those who are ethnically Jewish. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul says, no, no, no. Offspring is in the singular and is not referring to many, but is referring to one. No, other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who is the descendant of Abraham. That's what the Bible is saying here. Thus, all of the blessings of Abraham, all of the Abrahamic blessings that are in the covenant of God with Abraham, all of them fulfilled in the one and only true offspring, seed, descendant of Abraham. Thus, anyone who wants to be the recipient of all the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, must come to God only through the one and only descendant, offspring, seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the term in Christ here is a powerful term. In Christ is saying that you can only be in Christ through the grace of Christ. That you can only be in Christ through faith in Christ. That you can only be in Christ when you have placed your whole trust in Christ. That you are only in Christ by being saved by Christ alone. Not through being ethnically Jewish, but by by being in the one who is spiritually the seed and the descendant of Abraham. Salvation is not through ethnic identity, but through faith in the one and only offspring of Abraham. And beloved, this is indisputable. This is unchangeable. This cannot be added to or subtracted from. It is the whole truth. And like a good lawyer, the apostle Paul goes on to press his point by explaining that Abraham was saved by faith. Not by the law. He couldn't be. Because he lived 430 years before the law. And when God gave the law, he did not nullify the covenant of grace with Abraham. He didn't do that. In fact, as I said, the law came 430 years after the covenant of grace, where Abraham was saved by grace alone. As a matter of fact, when the law came 430 years after Abraham, you know what the law did? It divided humanity. Jew, Gentile. Put a separation between Jews and Gentiles. And that is why, when God's Messiah, the offspring of Abraham, came from heaven, he destroyed that division. Jesus, Abraham's offspring, healed that division. Uh, Jesus, Abraham's offspring, tore down the wall of hostility that separated us. Jesus, Abraham's offspring, by His grace, He welcomed everyone from every ethnic group, from every background. If they are repentant and come to Him in faith, they are saved. And today, a Messianic Jew and a Gentile believers can become one. How come? Because both are only saved by the grace of the offspring of Abraham that God had in mind all along the Lord Jesus Christ. And all who are saved by faith in Jesus Christ are counted as righteous just as Abraham was counted righteous. Because the law was of no use to Abraham. (laughs) It came centuries later. Beloved, listen to me. Every promise of God that was given to Abraham is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the offspring of Abraham. And the only way anyone anywhere I don't care what the label may be if it's a Hindu, a Buddhist, a Muslim, an atheist, an agnostic, a a humanist, a, a Catholic, an Episcopalian, and a Baptist, or a Presbyterian, labels mean nothing to God. That is why everyone everywhere must come to God through the one who is the only offspring of Abraham. No one can be a recipient of the blessing of Abraham who does not come to him in faith and through faith through the descendant of Abraham. For example, is a family that has four children. Two of them adopted, two are natural children. By law, they will get equal shares. Of the asset. It makes no difference how they got the last name, (laughs) adopted or natural. The issue is not how they came to the last name. You see, before Jesus Christ the Messiah came to earth, salvation was possible only because these folks were able to look forward to the cross. That's how they were saved. They were not saved because they were Jewish, they were saved because they looked forward to the cross. And that is why when Jesus said those words, they became mad, those natural eyes that could not have faith. They were angry at him. They wanted to kill him. Here's what he said. Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. What do you mean? You're not even 50 years old. See, that's the natural mind thinking. But the eyes of faith understood exactly what he's talking about. Those who came to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ knew exactly What the promises were at the Old Testament, that they are saved by looking forward to the cross, looking forward to the coming of Jesus, and that's how they were saved in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, after the coming of the offspring of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ, we are saved by looking back at the cross. And those who looked forward to the cross in the Old Testament, those who looked back at the cross in the New Testament, they're going to make up the company of heaven, and we're going to be in heaven together. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, this was not just a statement made arbitrarily, where people fight over, oh, it's just your interpretation. A lot of people claim to be Christians. But then at the same time, they said, all oh, the religions have equal value. Everybody's going to make it. God is so loving. He's not going to let anybody. Really? They're well-meaning. But in reality... What they're saying is, Jesus is a liar. If He said, I am the only way, the only truth, and the only way to eternal life, and they said, no, 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 everybody else is going to make it, they're saying, Jesus is a liar. Listen, I know, I I understand, I understand. It's just too confusing for the average person. When lots of people call themselves Christians, I know that. And many of those who really think they are Christians, sadly are going to end up in eternity that is a Christless eternity. And that is why we need, in these last days, to double our effort to get people to come to know Jesus so they will be eternally saved. But the natural question that should be on your mind, if this is the case, why the law at all? <laughs> if Abraham saved by grace, offspring of Abraham is Jesus and saved by grace of Jesus, then why the law? Right? Paul asks that question himself in verse 19. The very fifth two words in verse 19. Why the law? <laughs> he asks that question. And he goes on that same verse 19. He answers the question. It was added because of transgressions. But it was temporary. It was not permanent. It was temporary until the offspring of Abraham whom the promise referred to comes. In fact, At verse 19 of Galatians 3, all the way to the end, you're going to find, and I'll summarize them for you, three reasons why God gave the law 430 years after Abraham. Three reasons. I want to share them with you. First of all, he said the law was given to be a mirror that reveals our sinful nature. Secondly, he said it is a guardian that was given to us until we reach the age of maturity, until we come to Christ. And thirdly, it is the pipeline to grace. You see, the law was added to show everyone, 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 everywhere, our inability to save ourselves. The law is given to demonstrate to us our desperate need for grace. <laughs> the law is added to show us that we are a rebellious people against a holy God. The law was given to drive us to a deliverer. The law is given for us in order that it be a constant reminder of our total inability and that we are incapable of meeting the demands of the law. So the next natural question in your mind, if it is not, it ought to be, if he can't be saved by the law, for no one can keep it all the time, all of it, perfectly, then why? Why, Michael, explain to me why so many Christians are so fussed up about having the Ten Commandments hanging on walls, in the courthouse, in the classrooms. Wh- wh- why are Christians so hung up on this symbol? Why? Why should the Ten Commandments be and are the basis for our justice system? Why should we allow ourselves to get dragged into courts by the ACLU and all other groups for trying to uphold the Ten Commandments in public? Why should we get upset with all these groups and ACLU and others who want to tear out the Ten Commandments from walls or public walls and life? Why should people like former chief justice Moore of Alabama lose his job when he insisted having the 10 commandments in his courthouse? Why? Why is that fuss if we can be saved by the law? Simply because the law is a mirror. Is a mirror for everyone to see that we are fallen people. And only when we recognize Our fallenness will we seek to be saved by Christ. The grace of God, listen to me, I know a lot of people preaching grace, but it's really not grace, it's cheap grace, because the grace of God is meaningless, and it's cheap if a person does not feel inadequate in themselves. Grace of God is meaningless to the one who does not No, does not even recognize that he or she is lost. The grace of God is meaningless for those who do not feel a desperate need for forgiveness of their sins. The grace of God is meaningless to those who do not recognize that they are offending a holy and righteous God. So it is out of compassion and out of mercy that God gave us the law. He gave us the law to drive us into despair of ourselves and recognize our need for the Savior. God gave us a law to stir in us hunger for salvation. God gave us a law not to save us by the law, but to drive us to the only one who can save us eternally. I'm convicted that one of the greatest tragedy of our society today is the war on the Ten Commandments and the cross from public life. Because the Ten Commandments supposed to drive us to despair, and then the cross comes in and redeems us and forgives our sins. The Ten Commandments tell us that we are incapable of saving ourselves, but the cross says, come to the only one who can forgive you. The Ten Commandments drive us to hopelessness. Then the cross comes and says, there is hope in Christ. And that's why I death war. <laughs> Beloved, listen to me. This war is not by accident. It's not just happening. The evil one knows the power of these symbols. Now, I know there are a lot of well-meaning Christians removing these symbols and said, well, you know, it just offend people, so let's not have them. Because we don't want to offend anybody. They unwittingly, unwittingly doing the betting of the evil one. And they don't know it. Today, when a woman goes to one of those abortion mills, the first thing they say to her, you have nothing to feel guilty about. As someone said, they said it is counterproductive to try to eliminate guilt feelings without dealing with the guilt cause. And I say amen to that. The good news is that God loves you, and he desires to forgive you. For whatever causes that deep guilt, he doesn't want you to deal with the symptoms of guilt. He wants you to deal with the cause of the guilt. Because the cross does not deal with the symptoms, the cross deals with the root of sin. And therefore, the guilt that the Ten Commandments induces in us is the bad news. Then comes the cross uh, with the good news that God can deal with the root of guilt in us. He can remove our guilt. He can remove our sin. He can forgive us eternally. So the law is a mirror. But secondly... The law is a guardian, is a custodial. The word guardian here, it really has a very special meaning. You see, the ancient Greek and Roman cultures, you know Rome had two million slaves. But these were not laborers as we think of slaves. These were doctors, they were engineers, they were accountants, they were all professionals. But they were taking a slave by Rome. And so a well-to-do family in the Roman culture would take one of those slaves who is trustworthy. Somebody that they really trust, and they use them to educate their boys. This trustworthy slave would do the work on behalf of the parents, not instead of. These guardians, they will take the boys to school. They would train them in manners. They would help them do their homework. Uh, uh, They would um, train them in obedience. Uh, They even administer discipline on behalf of the parents. And the Greek word here is pedagogos. You see, every Galatian who was reading the epistle that Paul wrote here, everyone who was reading it, understood exactly the point that he was making here about the nature of the law. The pedagogos did not hold a permanent position. It was a temporary position. Uh, The pedagogos was only there to observe the boy's education until they reach the age of maturity. And then when the boys become adults, their guardians, this pedagogos relationship changes. The pedagogos no longer is a master, but he's a friend to the adult child. He was a master when the boy was little, but now he's a friend. Hear me right on this one. The Scripture here is very clear. Our pedagogos... Our master, the law, imprisoned us until faith in Jesus Christ was revealed. The law function as a master, but then our relationship has changed after succeeding and driving us to Christ, after the law succeeded in reminding us that we can't save ourselves, that only Jesus can save us, after the law takes us to the foot of the cross, after we come to that point in our lives, then the law becomes our friend, not our master. That's what Paul is saying here. Now you understand. Why they want to remove the Ten Commandments and the crosses from public life. Now you understand. They see them as an insult to the human pride. They see them as a, a rebuke to human arrogance. They see them as demeaning to human intelligence. And they're deciding for themselves whether they need forgiveness or not. The pride is mocked. By those two symbols human pride. And so they remove them from schools, government buildings, and public life in general. Why? Because God's law makes them aware of an authentic guilt deep down in their lives, whether they admit it or not. Make them aware of deep sin and helplessness and all oh, they fear that this awareness of their sin is going to drive them to Christ. They don't need forgiveness. They can get there by their own strength. When I see these things in the news and newspaper and ACLU dragging Christians into courts for displaying the commandments and and the cross and so forth, the Lord reminds me, these are not the real villains. Oh, they're responsible for their action, all right, but they're not the real villains. They are puppets on the string. If you're watching a puppet show and you hear the puppet says something that makes you mad, you don't want to take a big stick and beat the puppet. Right? You know the puppet can't speak, right? But the puppeteer is the one who's moving the strings, is the one who's speaking. And that is why... The Apostle Paul tells us in the Ephesians passage, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the power of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is a battle that is waged by the great perpetrator, And he's trying to eliminate the thought of God from public life. And we need to be aware of it. We need to be on our knees. We need to stand up and say, we know who's behind the scene. We know who's doing this evil work. But we are more than conquerors. Because he who is within us is greater than he who's in the world. Amen. Amen. The law is a mirror. The law is our pedagogos, our guardian, to drive us to Christ. Thirdly, the law is a pipeline to grace. And the best way I can illustrate this pipeline to the grace of God is a true story that I will make the point better than I try to explain it. In 1919, there was a peace conference in Paris Right after World War I. You remember, if you read history, it was uh, the war that ends all wars. <laughs> and then there was this peace conference at the end of the Ottoman Empire in a hotel in Paris. So, Lawrence of Arabia brought delegates from Arabia. Back then was not called Saudi Arabia. It was just Arabia. It became Saudi Arabia later, the House of Saud. And so, when these Arabs came into that hotel... And they went into the bathrooms of the hotels, and they turned the faucets on, and water gushed out. They were mesmerized. Now remember, in Arabia, water is so a precious commodity to get it from the well, and they use it so sparingly. There's a lot of water coming out of that faucet. So after the conference, in that hotel, the delegates were preparing to leave the conference, go back to Arabia. They started unhooking the faucets and packing them in their baggage. <laughs> I mean, to them, that's magic. You take that faucet back to Arabia, you get water. That's what they assumed. They assumed that the faucet is the source of the water. They had no idea of the system of pipes through which the water comes up all the way to these spigots. They actually thought that if they take these spigots and they install them in their tents, they're going to get water. And when Lawrence of Arabia saw what they were doing and packing the faucets and causing floods, he proceeded to explain to them that these fixtures are useless by themselves if they are not connected to the source of the water. And beloved, listen to me. I know we may laugh at this, but that's exactly what so many people on a spiritual level are doing today. They get trying to get spiritual water from disconnected fixtures. They're trying to draw power from all sorts of places that has no power. They try to fill their emptiness in their lives with religious activities. They try to find fulfillment in fixtures that produces no water. Unless you are connected to the source, Jesus Christ, you cannot be saved. Unless you are connected to the source, Jesus Christ, you will have no power for living. And therefore, listen to me. I'm going to get to close. Here's… Our testimony to this fallen world must be clear. And it is not, come and look at me, I'm good, and you bad. No, 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 God, help us, no. But rather, come to the only one who removed my guilt, who forgave my sins, and he can remove your guilt too and forgive your sins. That's our testimony. Come to the only one whose grace is sufficient, sufficient to forgive you, sufficient to redeem you, sufficient to save you, sufficient to heal you, sufficient to release you from all guilt, the very source of it, and give you the power to live righteously before God. There may be someone here today who would say, you know, I've tried all kinds of religion and I've tried all kinds of activities, and I've tried this, and I've tried this, and I am just keep failing, and I feel miserable, and and every time I try, it gets worse. Today you can come to Christ. Say, Lord Jesus, you're the source. You are the offspring. You are the seed of Abraham. You're the one who's promised your grace that can save me, and alone, your grace alone can save me. Let's pray together. Father, you know every heart. I look and I see lots of faces, but you see every individual. You're looking at every single person and you know us by name. You know us through and through. You know where we are. You know those of us who are failing. You know those of us who have put their trust in you. Those of us who are going to sources that are never going to satisfy us. And Father, I pray that not a single person, whether it be in this room or watching around the world, would come to Jesus the source today and receive grace upon grace, for that's who you are, in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org that's l t w dot org